0: Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to another edition of Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss. Glad to have you along today on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Lots going on at Acton these days, uh, including uh, just today, as we record this, uh, a lecture delivered by uh, Professor Frank Buckley uh, in conjunction, uh, Acton working with the Mackinac Institute today to put on this lecture. And... Uh, Just by way of introduction, Frank Buckley is a foundation professor at George Mason University School of Law. He's taught there since 1989. Prior to that, uh, he was a visiting Olin Fellow at the University of Chicago Law School. He's also taught at McGill Law School in Montreal and practiced law, by the way, for a couple of years in Toronto. Uh, So he's been on... Uh, both the teaching and practicing sides of things in Canada, and uh, also taught at the Sorbonne in Paris. Uh, well-traveled scholar, and welcome to uh, the Acton Studios. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. I want to mention as well, you've got a, a number of books under your belt um, uh, on a number of different topics related to law and governance Fair governance, just exchange, the morality of laughter—that sounds like a, an interesting topic right there. Absolutely. And uh, the fall and rise of freedom of contract. You also edited a collection of essays on the rule of law, which is something we're really interested here at, uh, really interested in here at Acton. Uh, that one is called *The American Illness*. And you are here today talking about your most recent book, which is called *The Once and Future King*. The rise of crown governance in America, or crown government, I should say, get it right in America. And I, I want to say right off the bat, I can hear the objections already. There are a lot of people out there who, you know, a lot of folks who follow, act, and listen to our podcast are Constitution lovers, liberty lovers. Uh, they're they're raising objections. We don't have a king. We have a constitutional republic. What are you talking about, crown government in America? I mean, even even the title of the book uh, is drawn from. I, I would assume, anyways. Um, the 1950s uh, book by, uh, what was it, T.H. White, uh, based, uh, it was released in Britain, Arthurian legend talking about King Arthur. What are you talking about crown government in the United States?
1: Well, White ripped off his title for Sir Thomas Mallory. It was a book about King Arthur. And he talked about what he called Rex Quondam Rex Futuris, the once and future king. That's the title. And the once The one king we had back when was George III, and now we're moving to something a little like that with recent presidents, particularly Obama. Now, when you have a president who can make laws by diktat and refuse to enforce the kind of laws that he doesn't like, then you're getting something close to a monarch. And it's not an hereditary monarch. It's an elected monarch. But George Mason said that's worse than the real thing. Because an elected monarch has the authority, the legitimacy of the election. And so Obama says, um, I don't really have to pay too much attention to Congress because I represent the people. That's that's kind of dangerous. Well,
0: we saw that actually in his uh, press conference as we're recording this. We're right after the midterm elections in 2014. He said, look, I I heard the voices of the people who voted, of course, but I also heard the voices of the people who didn't vote. Uh, I have a mandate that's bigger than Congress's. Uh, He's basically directly asserting a bigger electoral mandate for his actions, uh, which are of questionable constitutionality at best uh, in a lot of cases. Uh, than the Congress has.
1: Well, what's constitutional is basically what the Supreme Court allows you to get away with. And right now, it allows you to get away with a fair bit, as we've seen. So, Very true. The question for the orthodox constitutional American that you mentioned right at the beginning, that you referred to right at the beginning is, well, what, what exactly is our Constitution? If it's a Constitution where the president gets to do all that, then it's a different constitution from the one you thought you grew up with. It's, it's one where we've moved from separation of powers to presidential rule. And that's, that's always dangerous for liberty, one-man rule.
0: Going back to the founding of the country, and you talked about this a little bit today in your lecture, what sort of a president were we supposed to have? What sort of a legislature were we supposed to have? How was this all supposed to work when it was originally started up?
1: Well, when the framers had their debates in in 1787, and this is the most brilliant set of people who produced just an an extraordinary debate about the structure of liberty, just wonderful people, Benjamin Franklin... Governor Morris, Roger Sherman, splendid people, Alexander Hamilton. And the example they had before them on the dais was George Washington, who was absolutely intimidating. I mean, the greatest gentleman in the world, George III called him, you know, the, the very model of Republican virtue. And you looked at him and you could not conceivably imagine that he would misbehave in any way Nor was there much of a possibility of doing that because the government in Washington was such a narrow and confined one. But what's happened since then is power is centralized in Washington, not just from the states, but absolutely in terms of the growth of the regulatory state. You have presidents who are made rock stars of by the the media and you end up with a fellow like Obama, for example, who feels that he represents the American people more than Congress itself does. I mean, in, in the quote you refer to, what he's doing is he's questioning the legitimacy of Congress. He is more legitimate than they are, and that's exactly what why George Mason said this is more dangerous than a hereditary monarchy. So I, I'm not saying it's like it's exactly like Britain in 1787. But what I am saying is it's not America 50 years ago. And the difference is something that should worry people how did this how did we get to this place i mean it, it, as as we're raised
0: and we go through our civics classes and we learn the traditional things that everyone learns about american government we learn that there's a separation of powers that the president is checked by the congress and the and the judiciary and that each branch is is balanced against each other in power and then that power is divided between the federal and the state governments where can you pinpoint a place where it went wrong where where did that uh, process start to shift
1: that was the grand theory And whenever you hear a grand theory, you should be immediately suspicious. Because what you want to ask is, what you want to say is, theories are neat, but what exactly is the evidence? And the evidence is of an accumulation of presidential power. So there are a number of reasons for that. One is, the balance of power between the states and the feds has changed to the advantage of the feds. So the president has much more power than a 19th century president in general. Um, The regulatory state means... You can't manage the bureaucrats from Congress. Only the president can do so. So the growth of the regulatory state means the executive, whoever he is, is going to have a lot more control. I mean, he'll, he'll appoint the people he wants to uh, serve as cabinet members, and he'll appoint political officers, and roughly he'll, he'll, he'll get them to do what he wants. And then, as I say, the, the, the modern media has made rock stars of a president. So right now, you have a situation where you, you don't know much about your, your individual congressman, but you know the president. I mean, you treat him like a king. If there is some untoward event, it requires a healing speech by the president. If there is a great event, it requires a presidential medal. Uh, you you think about the ages of Kennedy, the ages of, of, of FDR. You are defined to an important extent by the president of a particular period, and Congress becomes minimized. And the separation of powers, so far as being a protection against all of this, has now turned out to be something which empowers the president. Why? Because the president can at this point say, well, the separation of powers is broken down. We have uh, Congress in one party, the president in the other party. Because of that, I get to rule by myself. I get to pass regulations by myself, executive orders by myself, I don't enforce laws I don't like, all because the separation of powers is broken down. So what was supposed to be a bulwark against one-man rule now turns out to enable one-man rule. Well, you've kind of uh,
0: answered the, the question that I was going to ask in that, it, what, what you attribute the growth of this power to. It's, it's in part because the president is one person and Congress is this group, um, and so it's it's much easier to uh, trust in one person to follow one person than it is to put your trust in this big group of people who are often fighting. And of course, the if we look at congressional approval ratings recently, they are plumbing new depths. Um, can we can we talk a little bit about some examples? Uh, you, I, I know that I think you I think it's fair to say that you're you see Obama's presidency as a pretty. Uh,
1: severe progression of this consolidation of power in the executive I think pretty much everybody does every serious scholar who's not an utter partisan creep will will say exactly that
0: now I, I want I don't want this to be uh, a partisan because I'm sure that I, I'm sure you can cite examples from other presidents as well so why don't you give us an example uh, from say recent history of 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 something that uh, is is just an a presidential wielding of power without constitutional authority or just a wielding of power for power's sake. And then if if you can go back and pinpoint a
1: few prior to that, that maybe... uh... Well, let me start with the priors. The priors have to do with the war power. Um, The war power, which more or less was invented by Abraham Lincoln, is something that pretty much every modern president has claimed to have as a cloak to empower him. So there was a piece of legislation... In nineteen seventy four right after the fall of Nixon or during the fall of Nixon, called the War Powers Resolution, which said essentially the President can't send people abroad to fight in a war unless within sixty days he gets congressional authorization to do so. And every president since then has disregarded that. so um, that's almost bipartisan that 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 really is bipartisan. When George Bush did that then the left became extremely exercised and extremely partisan but respected papers like the New York Review of Books featured articles which said they smelled the whiff of fascism mm-hmm. in that, which you know, which is basically silliness. Mind you, it was the Supreme Court that reigned in uh, the interrogation techniques employed by, by George Bush in that case. But since then... Uh, Obama's taken it to a new level. In what way? Well, of course, there's the war power. He can go to war whenever he wants. Um, but in addition, he uses executive orders or disregards legislation, not simply with respect to war, but more generally with respect to internal matters. A good example, of course, is immigration. It's on the table right now, but he's even given us a, a broad hint as to what he thinks his powers when he, in effect, enacted the DREAM Act back in 2010 or 11. Mm-hmm. The DREAM Act was something which Congress refused to pass. It would have legalized about 1.8 million uh, young uh, undocumented kids. Congress refused to pass it. Obama, in effect, did the same thing by himself. So there's a, there's a case where you use an executive order in the face of Congress, Congress didn't do it, therefore, I'll do it um, It's absolutely extraordinary and and of course, what's on the cards right now is the announcement of or the impending announcement of a legalization of five million people, the executive amnesty, as they call it right well, which is uh, which is absolutely extraordinary I mean. For people who think this is not an elective monarch, take a look at that one. It's it's sobering. It's sobering to think about it. I,
0: I think for I think first of all most citizens don't think about this stuff. Most people uh, who are citizens of the United States are sort of used to the idea of the president being this very powerful man, and when these expansions of executive authority happen, most people just don't even. They either don't realize that
1: it's happening, or they don't understand the import of it. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say, and there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that um, we've lost the habit of thinking constitutionally, as opposed to politically. When you think politically, you just want your issue to win. You don't care how, but by any means necessary, as I had to quote a phrase. When you think constitutionally, you think, well, in addition, this has to pass constitutional muster, and the idea of one man rule is not what the framers had in mind. Indeed, it's exactly the opposite of what they had in mind. So you have to, as I say, ignore constitutional fetters entirely. And the second the second thing, or the second reason why this is something we're seeing now, is the extreme partisan nature of, of American politics. It used to be not terribly long ago that we would broadly agree on general principles and, there, you know, there, there were differences, but, you know, with somebody like a Harry Truman or even a John Kennedy, uh, it wasn't the case that one was a Republican or a Democrat first, one was an American first, but that's no longer the case. We are so divided that people don't think in terms of that loyalty, that broad loyalty, so much as their partisan loyalty. So uh, it's not what is good for America, but it is—is uh, this good for my race or class or gender or my party? It's—it's it's hard to deny that the, the uh, how to say
0: the proliferation of interest group politics. The it seems like there's a continual fracturing of the populace into smaller and smaller groups now, uh, each clamoring for their own special treatment.
1: It's been called the big sort. It's the tendency of us to sort ourselves out according to our political allegiances. We become divided socially. I mean, Republicans hang out with Republicans, Democrats hang out with Democrats, and uh, the Pew Research uh, Polling Institute tells us that people will defriend on Facebook, people of, diff- of, of the wrong kind of politics. So I, I think that's that's fairly new um, and and nasty. Yeah. Because it frays at the sense of being an American. It's, it's more difficult these days,
0: it seems, to have a conversation, just dealing with the issues without it devolving into some sort of uh, accusation-flinging contest.
1: Right. Yes. I mean, it, it used to be the case that where there were those kinds of divisions... There was a broad understanding that, well, that's okay, we all share the same general broad principles, it's just tactics, how do we best get there? But now if you disagree with someone, you're presumptively evil. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, I think that's particularly true with respect to uh, Democrats, but uh, maybe perhaps it's shared. And that's, you know that's, that's not the sort of thing one associates with a healthy polity.
0: By no means that's that's very true, so obviously we 've diagnosed a pretty huge problem in American politics and in American culture right now it It sounds to me as i as I listen to you speak and as I listen to your lecture today, this is a generational thing. This is not something that 's going to be solved uh, by the by the waving of a magic wand how How do we approach this? how do we as citizens, what recourse do we have to start to rebuild a, a truly constitutional government?
1: Well, it would be nice if if one could rediscover one's gag instinct, the idea that at some point uh, presidential excesses make one physically ill. When a president struts around on the world stage, when he is surrounded by admirers, when he gloats in his own feelings of self-esteem, when he hugs himself with sheer delight in who he is, then it's 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 time to wonder whatever happened to the instinct to throw up in, in the face of these kinds of people. Think, for example, of the 2008 Democratic um, Convention in, in, in Denver with all those Roman columns. And then ask what the framers, those good, solid, small-R Republicans, would have thought of that. They, I think, would have been physically ill. Ultimately, it comes down to the voters themselves. When a president can take on Congress, he can do so in part because it's a battle between the guy elected by everybody versus a guy elected in some place from Ohio you never heard of. But it's also the case that when he's done so, he's generally done it where he's felt he has the voters at his back, And it would be nice if American voters had a sense that this is drifting towards a very different kind of government than the one we want or the one the framers wanted. And we'd like to return to a a regime of of divided government of of, of some kind. In a large part, it's an issue of
0: education, of good civics, of of voters knowing what they need to do and what they expect of their government and rejecting these things, which people aren't doing in mass Amounts right now, right? obviously. Um, and that kind of leads into the topic of—it might lead into the topic of your next book, which is is on—you're um, writing right now on the topic of immobility and aristocracy in America. And one of the things that you mentioned is that we have an education system that's almost designed to maintain this sort of uh, class of people who don't understand the, the political— uh, uh, liberties that they're giving up, who 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 are fine with sort of an aristocracy, sort of a monarchy in government.
1: We've given up the idea of teaching people that there is something admirable about American principles. We have an education system that uh, particularly there, there is a, a new set of AP standards, which for many Americans is the last history course they'll take, which is really good at teaching people about what a rotten country this is. Mm. Um, but it's not very good about teaching about what is admirable about American principles. And the fact is, in, in every single country, there are things that are rotten and there are things that are admirable. But a long time ago, a fellow called Ernest Renan wrote an essay called What is a Nation? And he wrote that What is a Nation involves being able to remember some things in common and to forget some things in common. Mm. So we have to have a kind of cultural amnesia about some of the bad stuff. Yes, it's important not to forget it, but if we've concentrated only on that and we produce a generation that feels inferior because it's American, then then we've missed something, Um, although we have greatly, greatly helped empower uh, a king as our leader, if we do so. I've been talking with Frank Buckley
0: professor at George Mason University School of Law, uh, author of The Once and Future King, The Rise of Crown Government in America. Uh, Dr. Buckley, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. I appreciate it very much, and hopefully we'll have opportunity to have you back here at Acton again.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: And with that, we draw this edition of Radio Free Acton to a close. As they say, even Homer nods. I want to make one small correction on this podcast earlier on. I referenced the fact that today's event with Professor Buckley was co-sponsored, held here at the Acton Institute's Mark Murray Auditorium, but co-sponsored with the Mackinac Institute. It is actually the Mackinac Center. I want to make sure that's correct because our friends at Mackinac deserve to be uh, promoted correctly here on Radio Free Act. And if you're not familiar with the Mackinac Center, they're a fantastic uh, group that are uh, based out of Midland, Michigan, and they are a state policy institute, uh, one of the best, if not, and I maybe I'm a little partisan here, but uh, Mackinac, I think, is the best of the state policy institutes that grace these United States from coast to coast. If you want to check out their work, uh, feel free to do so online at mackinaw.org. And for those not from the Great Lakes State, Mackinac is spelled M-A-C-K-I-N-A-C. Pronounced Mackinac, but spelled Mackinac. Uh, so mackinaw.org is the place to go for the Mackinac Center for Public Policy online. You can find Acton online, of course, at acton.org, A-C-T-O-N, and uh, all of our podcast archives are at radio.acton.org. Check that out as well for all of our archives spanning a number of years. Thanks again to the Mackinac Center for helping us to organize today's uh, event with Professor Buckley. Thank you so much to uh, Frank Buckley for coming by the studios again. Uh, fantastic uh, opportunity to talk to you today and hopefully an enlightening podcast for all of our listeners And, of course, I want to thank our listeners who make uh, doing this podcast worthwhile. Thanks for joining us today, and we will see you next time on the next edition of Radio Free Acted.